So in considering the cultivation of right view or liberating understanding, in Pali, the term for right view or right understanding is samaditi. And it's the first factor on the Noble Eightfold Path. Sama is translated usually as right, sometimes as wise, but it can also be more literally mean the fulfillment of, the collecting together, the bringing together of. And it brings together all aspects of this path of practice. Right or fulfillment doesn't mean the only way and it doesn't mean a lot. It is a view that is not just a complex view. It's not a right, a big view. It's not a particular kind of understanding of something. Instead, it refers to an approach, a perspective to practice, to life, to experience of the senses that is liberating. It's the attitude that makes our practice purposeful and effective. Now, many of you have already heard talks on right view, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths. Is that, are those concepts and systems familiar to some of you? Yeah, a lot of people are raising their hands or nodding their heads. Well, why do we still listen to teachings when we already know them? It's very interesting with the Dhamma because as many times as I hear talks on the Four Noble Truths, and I assure you I have heard many talks on the Four Noble Truths, they still bring delight to my mind to listen. They still bring joy and a kind of peacefulness just to recognize that again and again I have the opportunity to hear something of this truth. There's something of an excitement, actually, in hearing the Dhamma, a joy as consciousness meets this very basic truth of experience. One of the things that we practice and develop in the practice in the Buddha Dhamma is the capacity to delight in wholesome states, in wholesome engagements, to take joy in it. Now, not everybody finds listening to a Dhamma talk the delightful experience of their day or of their week. But some people do. Some of you come every week and you take delight in spending an evening together with people who share the wish for liberation, share the appreciation of virtue, and share this endeavor, this practice of cultivating the mind through meditation. Believe it or not, there are some people who prefer to sit home and read a spy novel or watch television. It is an interesting thing to cultivate the enjoyment of wholesome states, to cultivate an interest in just hearing the Dhamma without it necessarily needing to be entertaining in a conventional sense, without it needing to be funny or to be exciting or thrilling. Wise view, a kind of correct perspective or disposition or understanding, is critical in directing our practice and our growth toward awakening, rather than just accumulation or intellectual knowledge. 
I don't think of Buddhism as a religion in the conventional way that we usually think of and speak about religions. I also don't think of Buddhism as a philosophy. It's a way of living, a way of living in accord with the potential and the possibility of liberation. In the middle-length discourses, the Buddha said in um, the discourse at Asapura, the Buddha said, right understanding is assisted by five factors when it has liberation by wisdom for its fruit, namely virtue, or other translations say morality, um, reflection, and another translation says wise learning, discussion, calmness, and insight. So we have virtue, reflection, discussion, calmness, and insight. These are the five conditions that support the development of right understanding or right view. This is, in a way, the Buddha's response to the question, how to enter the path? Because the first step or the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path is this right view, and it can feel elusive to many people because we're not born with right view, so how do we develop it? And if it's the basis for all the other factors of the path, then how do we practice the other factors without first practicing right view? It's this kind of chicken and egg egg thing, what comes first. We have to cultivate the practice to understand right view, but we need right view to develop the path and the practice. How do we practice to attain right view when it's the necessary requirement to begin? So I want to look at these five factors that support the cultivation and development of right view. The first being virtue or morality. There is a beautiful verse that appears both in the Udana and the Samyutta Nikaya that says, It is by living with a person that his virtue is to be known, and then only after a long time, not after a short period, and only by considering it, not without consideration, and only by one who is wise, not by a fool. This statement that it is by living with the person that his virtue is to be known, not after a short time, but a long time it takes to really know somebody. We must consider it, and we must also be wise to be able to discern it. It's just not obvious how to assess somebody's virtue. We may sense a kind of sincerity, a purity, and honesty. We might sense a purity of somebody's intentions. We might see that with a relatively pure mind, somebody tries to live well. They attempt to investigate and interact with their, their, their various relationships and activities and responsibilities in a way that doesn't cause harm, that tries to alleviate suffering. Our virtue, though, will affect many things. It will affect the way that we perceive things. It will affect our inclinations. How do we react to the things that we see here in contact? This is going to affect the purity and the reactivity in our minds, but it's 
our reactivity is also going to affect the manifestation of our virtue and our morality. So when we develop virtue, we also look at our response to things, our reaction. Virtue is not just abiding by a set of rules in life. It's about abiding with equanimity, with mindfulness, so that we can engage with whatever life brings us in a way that feels genuine and honest and skillful. A virtuous mind, then, becomes confident. It's able to rest, to be settled, even in very difficult situations that might otherwise spark blame or anger or greed in less virtuous minds. In this way, virtue is a fundamental support for the development of concentration because it helps the mind to settle and to be stable and present. The clarity of our conduct, the manifestation of our morality, purifies our consciousness so that we perceive things in terms of what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. Our very vir- our actions that are virtuous help develop the right view that knows what is the path and what is not the path. To remain balanced in our lives, not jump into arguing, fighting, resisting, or defending a particular position or attitude. We need a certain strength in our virtue. We need a kind of confidence that knows that our intentions are clean and our motivations are pure. We don't need to um, uh, defend ourselves. We instead try our best and then we reflect to see whether what we were doing led to something useful or led to something harmful. And then we learn from it and refine our conduct and our virtue accordingly. The second condition is reflection or wide learning. How many of you have read some suttas? Oh, a good chunk of you. Lovely. Lovely. I think it's important to read the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha ourselves, and not just wait for a pre-digested version. Why should you believe what I say the Buddha taught? What I think the Buddha said? At some point in the development of your practice, it's important to read for yourself whatever feel like the most authentic teachings of the Buddha, the historically authentic teachings, and then contemplate them. Consider, what do these mean? What did they mean 2,600 years ago? And what are the teachings that are relevant to you now? When we read the primary texts, then we get a kind of direct access to what those liberating teachings are. And we don't have to wait for a famous teacher to explain them to us or for somebody to to have a strong opinion about what it is or a little soundbite and quote that's sort of presented on a silver platter. Sometimes we read other Buddhist books, which I also encourage. I've written a few of them myself. (laughs) Um, 
But it's important to consider what we read and why we read them. Are we reading only mainstream publishers? Because if we're reading only the mainstream publishers, we're probably only getting one slice of the information that's available. And that's only the slice, probably, that makes money for the publishers. So I would encourage you to look at a range of different public publishers and a diff different styles, different interpretations, different, different presentations of the Dhamma so that you don't just get the popular version because very likely that may be a watered-down version. Not entirely. There happen to be some really good Dhamma books out there from mainstream publications that hit the best-seller lists. But there are also some watered-down ones that are out there and popularly read. So use your wisdom to consider what reading supports a deep reflection. What keeps you learning? What keeps you growing? We just started a sutta study course for the year on the connected discourses of the Buddha, this large text here. And I, after the, I, I didn't ask people for the very first session to do this. We started on the second month, which is I've given everybody the assignment to please memorize a passage, to select something that resonates with them, and to commit it to memory. When was the last time you memorized something? Now, some of you may memorize things regularly in your work or in your, in your days. But other people may think, the last time I memorized something was when I was in high school or in, you know, back in school. And you have to go back into your memory to remember when you memorized something. I encourage you to... Find, when you find something in a book that you're reading that feels like, wow, that seems true, or what does that mean? It seems true, but I don't really understand it. Then memorize that paragraph or that sentence and contemplate it for some time. Let it kind of mull, mull through your mind or, or um, uh, just sort of let it soak in. I also think it's helpful to have a wide frame, a, a wide range of things that we reflect upon so that we're not only reading one thread of thinking, but we also find the wisdom and the value in other kinds of teachings. Now, if you're very interested in this kind of Buddhist practice, fantastic. Read the suttas. Read the Theravada texts. But you might sometimes also look for the wisdom that's in the Gospels or that's available in poetry or the, in the, um, what's being taught and discovered through science or thought in art, art theory or various philosophies. There is a teaching in the Theravada um, discourses that is from the, what's called the Kalama Sutta. And it was an occasion when the Buddha approached a community that was at a crossroads. And many, many different um, teachers from different sects at the time would come to this area because the village was right at this crossroads. And they would all get on their, their soap box and preach their teaching. And the villagers were confused. They didn't know who 
to believe who was right and who, whose path they should follow, who they should believe, who should they, they should take as their teacher, and what teachings they should endorse, because they were so inundated with so many different teachings. It can easily lead to confusion if we are inundated with a lot of different teachings. And living in the West, we have so much at our fingertips, so many different kinds of teachings available, books and readings and internet, all sorts of things. So it's important to not just believe something because we've read it or because the speaker is convincing that they have maybe a really good um, uh, speaking style. It's important not to believe something just because it's grounded in the tradition or because somebody said the Buddha said it. In fact, I started my sutta study many years ago after I was studying with a teacher who frequently said, the Buddha said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then in another discourse, the Buddha said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I was thinking, how does he know what the Buddha said? And so... That was when I started to study myself. I wanted to know for myself what the sources were and not just believe somebody who says, the Buddha said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We don't need to use our study as a basis for belief. We don't need to take a stance based upon some knowledge that we acquire from books or from um, listening to talks. But we can still value study. We can value remembering, memorization, recitation. We can value the input that we get from these textual sources and use them to develop greater understanding and expand our perception beyond what we usually notice. There's a parable of a person who's born blind and can't see dark forms or light forms or colored forms, can't see what is even or uneven, the stars, the moon, the sun. And so this blind person says, I do not see these. I do not know these. Therefore, they do not exist. And the Buddha says that this blind person, denying what is, he is outside his own particular experience, is compared, is compared to the, the, a, a person, a monastic or a lay person, who denies the teachings or the potential for the teachings, or even as something as simple as a pleasure that is beyond sensory pleasures. When we don't yet have an experience ourselves in our spiritual life, do we deny the possibility of it because we have not yet seen it? Do we deny that there is a God because we have not conversed with a God? Or can we say we don't know? Do we deny that there is karma and consequences to our actions because we don't know how the law of karma functions and we can't calculate all the innumerable conditions that come together to create the effects? Do we deny the possibility of enlightenment because we have not met somebody who is enlightened? 
Or can we hold out that possibility as a possibility? Something that we may not yet know ourselves, but we don't close the door to it. Do we deny rebirth because we cannot remember our last incarnation? Or can we accept that that may be a possibility, or it may not be? We don't know. The development of right view or right understanding is supported by what's called wide wide learning or reflection. And this involves a willingness to stay open, to learn, to investigate, to not be fixed on any particular view, but to let go of the position that grasps a hold of beliefs and instead stays open to learning. So the third condition that supports right view is that of discussion. And what do we discuss? We discuss what we've learned. We discuss potentials and possibilities. We discuss various teachings. We discuss things, whether we feel we understand them or not. Many of you are familiar with the suttas and, have, and will remember from the middle-link discourses times when the early Buddhist communities the monastics would meet together for Dhamma discussions. And there were many stories of little groups of monastics who would gather together and talk about the Dhamma. Maybe one of them heard a discourse from the Buddha and then would recite that, what they remembered from that discourse, and then there would be a discussion about it. Or perhaps in, in other situations, somebody... He heard a discourse from the Buddha, didn't know what it meant, didn't bother to ask the Buddha what it meant. The Buddha went off, and then they were left with this discourse that they were completely confused about. And so they would go to a senior monk, an elder monk, who would then explain it more. And then they would have some questions, some dialogue, some questions and answers, questions and answers about that, that topic. There are just dozens and dozens of discourses that have developed in the Buddhist tradition because of dialogues and discussions that were happening. How often do you sit down and have a Dhamma discussion with friends? How often do you have a discussion about your perception of reality? about suffering and the end of suffering, even without any language that sounds Buddhist. Because we can have Dhamma discussions. It's about how we respond to life. It's about how we know. The Dhamma is about how we know mind and body, how we know reality. It's not just about what the Buddha taught. We can have these discussions about reality without the Buddhist language if we're talking to somebody who doesn't um, share that, 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 that language. During the time of the Buddha, many wanderers from different um, sects and belief systems would meet in the parks where they stayed. Uh, they often resided outside the villages in the various parks 
um, and forested areas. And so there was a tradition in Indian culture of debate and dialogue between these different philosophical approaches. It's very interesting to consider how we speak with people who have different philosophical approaches to us. How can we explore our own beliefs and our own perspectives and learn from others without having to solidify a belief and defend it, but instead discuss? When we first encounter a teaching, whether we're reading or we hear it in a talk so we hear that we hear it, often we at first only have a superficial understanding. And what the mind can do is just compare it to something that we already know. This happens a lot when people go on their first retreat or attend their first meditation experience, that they will describe their experience as being just like blank. And the blank is whatever they were previously doing. A mindfulness practice is just like silent Tai Chi. Or it's just, or a meditation retreat, it's just like therapy, but without the talking. Or it's just like an extended Quaker meeting. Or it's just like a motivational workshop or a seminar of some motivational speaker. Or this one was the one I liked the best, where somebody said, it's just like a music festival, but without the music. <laughs> and in a way, all of them describe uh, a resonance. When somebody says, it's just like this, they're really, what the heart is saying is that it touches them. It's, there's a resonance. It feels in a way like their home. It feels like something that they already value. But it just is illuminating to see how so often our language is when we meet something new, we compare it to what we know. And if we can find a comparison to what we already know, then it feels somehow more okay to us. This isn't necessarily bad or wrong, but it's worth noticing to what extent we want new experiences to confirm our previous experiences and views. The innocent enthusiasm that new practitioners feel when they encounter the Dhamma usually is not the same as right view or right understanding, because right view just rarely arises so quickly. That initial zeal, that initial excitement is infused, infuses us with a desire to go deeper in the practice, but it usually isn't the right understanding of that path. This is one of the reasons why it's so valuable to just keep showing up to come to events, to come to the sitting groups, to come to the day-longs, to be in places with other people practicing. Even if you figure, you know, I can sit silently at home just fine, and sometimes it's quieter at home. Or you think, well, you know, I can listen to these things online. Why do I have to go out in the evening to go to them? So even though we can get the information in other ways, 
I still think there's something very powerful about coming together as a community to practice because we're creating the conditions here for right view to develop. Right view is not something that is adopted like a belief. It's realized little by little as our path becomes clear. The Buddha spoke to many people during his 45-year ministry, and he pointed to the causes of suffering and showed them the way to the ending of suffering. He was not handing out band-aids, tranquilizers, or antidepressants. He was not teaching people just to relax or how to feel better. He wasn't teaching people to repair their personality quirks or solve their relationship problems. The spiritual inquiry was aimed at identifying the causes of suffering and guiding students in a way that they could abandon those causes of suffering. At the time of the Buddha, there was a standard sort of set of philosophical questions or views that spec what they called speculative views that were explored and proposed they were kind of like the the themes that people liked to talk about and they were remembered in the discourses um, as is the world eternal or not eternal is the world infinite or not infinite it does the soul exist after death is the soul the same as the body so there were several like this. I'm not sure that all these questions have yet been answered. But after, in one encounter, these various views were stated. And then one of the disciples of the Buddha, Ananda, was asked his view. What is the Buddhist view to present here? And, the, and Ananda, Venerable Ananda, didn't take a stance. He didn't agree and he didn't disagree with any of the, the, the philosophical positions. He instead shifted the, the, the inquiry to focus on what was actually happening right then, the process of establishing views and taking a stance on views. So without giving an answer, he said, he commented that, only this is true, anything else is worthless, is a viewpoint. The extent to which there are viewpoints, view stances, the taking up of views, the obsession with views, the cause of views, and the uprooting of views, that's what I know. That's what I see. Knowing that, I say I know. Seeing that, I say I see. Why should I say I don't know? I don't see. I do know. I do see. So he didn't say, I know I see the world is eternal, or I know I see the world is not eternal. He said, I know I see the taking up of stances, the taking up of views. He sees where that taking up of views leads, where it leads to suffering. When we consider our own speech, our, the way that we discuss, the way that we dialogue, how often is our own conversation that straightforward, that relevant to what's happening right now? Or do we get seduced a lot into speculative views? 
We like to think we have a lot of free speech in the United States, and actually compared to the world, we really do. Because certainly the government doesn't censor what private citizens say, but we censor ourselves all the time. We're not only judging our speech based on what's true and what's useful and assessing what's appropriate and useful to speak in different situations, but sometimes we screen our topics and our speech styles by how they conform, not just to what's true and useful, but to what are the dominant and expected modes of communication. Sometimes we say not the most useful and wise thing that we could say, but we say just what we think somebody wants to hear. What never gets talked about in Vipassana circles? Think about it. What do we not speak about? Okay, it's not sex and it's not money because we talk about all those things. There are other circles that we may not, but in California, we talk about sex and money. But what do we not question? Can we talk about some of the darker impulses of lust or cruel, of cruelty? Or do we feel like we have to be spiritual when we come here? Can we talk about the politics of meditation centers and meditation groups? Can we talk about our own embarrassing moments or our failures? Can we talk about renunciation practices? Or do we feel like we always have to uphold a lay perspective? Can we talk about our spiritual experiences, the moments of insight. If we think we've had an enlightenment experience, can we share that? Or does it feel too risky? If we do remember or sense past lives, do we dare say that? Do we ever talk about God? Now, the God is an interesting question in a Buddhist circle because the Buddha was frequently asked about gods. Now, at the time of the Buddha, there was a a belief in many gods, many heavens, many realms, and many, many gods who did all kinds of antics. And when we look at the discourses of the Buddha, they they were talking not only about gods, they were talking with gods. So there's a lot of dialogues with various celestial beings. And we look at that now from a very different perspective, I think, than, um, than they did thousands of years ago. But what is our cultural view of God? And can we explore that also in the context of our Dhamma practice? There was one... Um, teacher, uh, Stephen Levine, who, teached, who, who teaches Dhamma, and he's also an author and a teacher, very involved in, um, in the dying, in the care of the dying and hospice work. And there was a time when he spoke of God during a Dhamma teaching, and there was kind of a collective gasp in the room. 
And he had to explain himself. He had to say that he had no difficulty using the term God because he said, quote, I haven't the foggiest idea what the term refers to, but I can't imagine anything that it excludes. And when I, uh, some years ago, when I was, um, there was a phase of my own practice when I was studying the Gospels and I was reading a lot of other religions. I had recently gone to Israel for the first time and was visiting many holy places of many different religions, which are sort of all around Jerusalem. And it was a time where I was really actively engaged in and reading a lot of different, um, different traditions. Well, those of you that have known me in the, more in the last few years, I've swung to a primarily Theravada reading, and so most of my quotes and talks are from the Buddha now. But who knows what I'll be quoting in five years from now. Anyway, five years ago, I tried to pepper my talks with um, quotes from many different traditions. If I was speaking about a theme, actually maybe it was more than five years ago, but um, <laughs> it was more than five years ago. Um, if I was speaking about a theme and I found that same theme in different religions or from different approaches, then I tried to use those different quotes and those different angles to try and illuminate the same theme and see how was it, how was it being dealt with by different um, by, by different approaches in different parts and times of, 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 our, of, of the world. Of, and I had taught as a guest teacher at another community, and um, I had used a quote from Ramakrishna, and I had used a quote from Mother Teresa, both of whom are oriented towards their vision of God, and different visions of God, but they were both illuminating the same Dhamma theme that I was... Um, that I was speaking to. So I used these different quotes, and somebody complained to the teacher, because I was just a guest coming in when the teacher was out of town. So I kind of got a call afterwards that basically said if I wanted to continue to teach at that group or be invited back, I needed to not, folk, not use the term God, because it didn't seem appropriate in that teacher's mind to use the term God in a meditation group. Now, I rarely do now because, like I said, my reading has swung to a different direction. But it was interesting to me that the suggestion was that I replace the word God with truth or the, with the word truth or the word awareness which I wasn't willing to do because I didn't want to distort the quote. I think Ramakrishna was talking about God, and I think, um, I think uh, Mother Teresa was talking about God. And then the discussion that we have to have is what that vision of God is. So anyway, it was an interesting contemplation in my life. And what I found, what I, what, what the reason I bring it into this talk on discussion is sometimes we use different words and different language. And if we're not willing to embrace slightly different interpretations of different words, then how will we ever discuss? How can we get a dialogue going with, with, with practitioners of different traditions, and how can we really explore the dynamic that many of you are experiencing internally, because many of you practice multiple religions or multiple approaches to your spiritual life. Can we discuss these things too? Can we dare talk about God 
in a meditation, in a Buddhist meditation group. So one of the things we learn is how to discuss, how to discuss our practice, how to discuss our inclinations, how to discuss our perceptions, how to discuss the Dhamma, and how to discuss our lives on this path of awakening. So the fourth um, condition that supports right view is the development of tranquility or calmness. Now, Sometimes the, the, the first three, virtue, learning, and discussion, seem a little bit different than the tranquility and the insight, which are the last two on the list that I'm looking at tonight. And the linking of the, the, the supporting and the development of these may not be obvious to everyone, because sometimes um, they seem a little different, like the first three involve our conduct and our relationships and our engagement with others, whereas tranquility and insight is more of a solitary pursuit, a solitary development. But deep calm and tranquility is needed for any reflection to affect us, to transform us, to settle into our hearts, and to, in a way, call us to the Noble Eightfold Path. If we're not calm and we're not tranquil, then any reflection that we have will be superficial. We'll just skim over the surface of things, not staying long enough to penetrate them deeply and clearly. And then when we do stay with our experience, sometimes the only experiences that we stay with, if we're not calm, are dramatic experiences And I've heard many students use the language of staying with an experience to only mean investigating the intensity of strong emotion and sustaining an experience or sustaining a a relationship with, say, anger or sadness, you know, wanting to stay with those feelings. But in the meditation practice, when we're calm, we develop the capacity to stay with, which means to open to the flow of changing experience as it's happening and to have a deep and penetrative experience of whatever is. And then sometimes we can pause. In a way, we can hold with concentration. We can focus on some aspect of our experience and explore it. If we only see the surface of something, then we may just miss a lot of it. You know, you might, you might just walk out to the parking lot and see a tree, but did you notice what kind of tree it was? Did you notice how tall it was? What color it was? Was it blooming or not? Were the leaves falling or not? Was it sick and dying? Or was it, um, was it, was it, did it look healthy? What was its size, its shape, the kind of bark? You all walked by a tree from your car to here. Did you experience that tree? How carefully did you observe it? Did you notice it? When we're calm, the mind is steady and stable. And any perception that we apply, or any, any object that we apply our attention to, we will perceive deeply and clearly. 
We'll see how it, we'll see what it is. We'll see how it changes. We'll see when that perception ends. And we might have some understanding of the causes and the effects that are involved in our engagement in that perception. We might have a fuller experience of life and of our encounters because we are more tranquil. In a way, the practices that we do with our eyes closed to calm and concentrate the mind, when we open our eyes, allow us to see everything more clearly. This profound calm allows us to experience things without judgment, without being caught by a desire and aversion, and so that we're open to things as they are. Now, insight is the fifth of the conditions that support right view or right understanding. Albert Einstein is said to have said, the splitting of the atom has changed everything except for how we think. Insight is not merely about accumulating knowledge. Insight transforms us. It changes how we think. It changes our perspective, our orientation, our disposition, our assumptions. It's a transformation of understanding that shifts how we see things from a possessive, pleasure-seeking motivation to an orientation that sees every aspect of our lived experience in the context of what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. We see our experience on the liberating path. These five conditions support this and mature into the expression of insight. And insight can be equated with right view. Often we start our meditation practice with some rather personal motivation, because naturally when we endeavor to do something and try something out, we usually want something. And that's fair enough. Desire is an important motivating force. Sometimes we want to reduce our stress and and our anxiety. We want greater health benefits, or we want to deepen our wisdom or increase our focus, overcome grief or reduce anxiety. Whatever the motivation is that gets us started is quite fine. But it doesn't make it right view or right understanding. It isn't the initial motivation that is the right view. It is the insight that that we develop that gives us a perspective on our own experience that ripens in right view. Right view develops through these incremental insights in the practice so that we begin to understand our world with less self-interest and more from an intimacy that comes from mindful connection. We begin to see not just our personal interpretations, the stories of our thoughts. We see how perception occurs, how sometimes we become attached and grasp to different perceptions. As the mind purifies and our view and, under, our view and understanding will transform 
the way that we interact with life. So the attainment of right view occurs with the insight that transforms the path from a personal, self-oriented approach, a kind of personal project, to a noble path that is liberating. Traditionally, right view is said to be one of the marks of what's called stream entry, which the Theravada tradition says is the first stage or the first um, stage of, of enlightenment. At this stage, we may not have completed the work. There might still be greed, hate, and delusion. Full enlightenment means the ending of greed and hate, hate and delusion. But at this first stage, when right view arises, we will know the path. We will know what leads to the increase of greed, hate, and delusion, and what leads to the ending of greed, hate, and delusion. No matter what happens in life, whatever we encounter, whatever we experience, we will be able to work with it as an aspect of the path, of the path that is liberating. And so we'll be able to bring that view of the path, that view that integrates every aspect of our lives into the path of practice, that liberating view to what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, what we think, what we feel, what we experience. And so just to remind you again of these five conditions, there is the condition of morality, reflection, discussion, calmness, and insight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.